on ABC Radio. You're with Trevor Chappell. Tim Winton is an author, conservationist and also a recipient of the Order of Australia. Good morning, Tim. Hey, Trevor. Firstly, can we talk about your receiving of the Order of Australia and how significant that is for you, not only to be recognised for literature, but also to be recognised for your environmental and conservation work? Yeah, it's um, it's a, I mean, it's a nice, nice surprise. Um, really, it's nice to get that sense of affirmation from your own countrymen and women. It's yeah, it's not something that you expect, of course, and and I guess it's nice to to get it in in kind of both fields that I play in, I suppose, in my in my day job, you know, I write books um, for a living and then the rest of the time I'm um, trying to save trying to save the, the planet uh, as a volunteer and um, it doesn't always um, it doesn't always go well together in terms of time management but yeah, look, I, I feel really pleased, partly because, let's face it um, Australia, you know we still kind of, we have a kind of tiered system, we still venerate our sports stars and our you know, mining tycoons above everyone else and there's daylight for quite a while and then there's just the rest of us, you know. So um to somehow get in under the wire as a as a as a writer and and as a kind of um a conservation activist. I mean sadly, uh um conservation activists don't just get overlooked. They often get um denigrated and um and uh, and persecuted, to be honest. So to be given this award for you know, you know, being a storyteller as well as um, someone who's trying to help us, you know, um, save something for those who come after us. That's yeah, that's pretty rewarding. Is it also good because you're writing, and as a novelist, there are strong links with the environment as well. Yeah, I mean, every, everything for me starts with the place. You know, it starts with the environment, the story. And the people have to come out of the place. The place always comes first for me. So, so I guess it's just having having learnt how important you know our places are and our natural world is. Um, you know, that's the sort of the, that's the grist of my stories. But it's also really the the economy, if you like, um, upon which we all depend. You know, that we're only ever going to be as good as the you know the the air we breathe. Um, the water we drink and play in, um, and the soil under our feet. You know, everything else is just um, everything else is just an add-on. You know, if, if if we haven't got those things right, we're um, we're buggered. As you talk about playing under your feet, do you think that your links to the environment and that play under your feet as a child then leads to an appreciation of the environment as well? I think so. I mean, looking back, I think we have to, you know, there's a lot of things we're better at when we're kids in terms of reading our environment and being sensitive to to the place. Um, there's a lot of things we have to give up uh, when we get to adulthood. We're expected to give them up, you know. But I grew up barefoot, you know, um, and you, you feel things better. I think kids are more sensitive and we... Sadly, I think we either shame or beat that sensitivity out of them to try and harden them up so that they're, you know, ready to be good citizens in a rat race where they're supposed to, uh, you know, inure themselves against um, some of the things that they, you know, that they'd be better off feeling. Do you think in the last 50 years, if we take, because I'm about the same age as you, from the late 60s through to where we are now, there have also been big changes in that we've probably seen as far as the impact that we have on the environment? Yeah, look, I, th- I, think, um, I think we're, you know, 
I think you and I are probably of the generation, you know, the last generation that had the best of what there was to to take and be and be be granted to us. And we're we're in this period in history where we can now see our tracks and we can see a kind of a narrowing of opportunity for the for the future. Um, and there are there are people among us who don't really give a rat's about that. They think, you know, they think, well, I've had my I've had my turn. Um, I'm all right. But if you care about those who come after us, whether you have children and grandchildren or not, if you if you care about um, the kind of future of of you know of our of our communities and our and our landscapes, then you'd be you know you'd be you'd be crazy not to think about um, you know what you might want to do about it. But yeah, we have seen changes. We, we've seen. You know, we've we've seen the stuff that we put in the air having an effect on our future. We've seen, you know, the amount of land that we're consuming, the stuff that we, you know, I think we we need a reset. And um, but uh, you know, on the on the other hand, I think um, uh, in my lifetime I've seen enormous positive changes in terms of the way that we think about our country. People, a couple of generation, a couple of generations ago in my family would have, you know, thought about territory, not country. You know, I think we have learnt from our indigenous brothers and sisters slowly over time to have a kind of a different uh, regard for where we're from. And you hear many more white fellows now talking about protecting country and caring for country. And once upon a time, it was just securing and consolidating your holdings of territory, you know. So, yeah, I think we've evolved. We just need to evolve a little bit quicker, I think. <laughs> a little bit more. Yeah. We're going to talk a lot about Ningaloo now. And can you just tell us what Ningaloo means? Oh, it's in uh, it's in it's in Bayonglu. It's uh well oh. it, it, there's a there's a bunch of um there's a bunch of meanings, but uh, nose is one of them. Um it's a huge promontory, it's an enormous um cape that runs um north out into the Indian Ocean. Um the, the northwest cape is a huge um peninsula and um it's got it's got Ningaloo Reef on the western side, um, and the Cape Range down its spine, um, which is a sort of desert environment. And um, on the, on its eastern shore, uh, there's the enormous Exmouth Gulf, which is um, 2,600 square kilometres of estuary, so about 48 times the size of Sydney Harbour. I'm glad you mentioned Exmouth Gulf because people talk about Ningaloo, but one of the great things about the documentary series that you brought out is it not only looks at the reef, but the important factors that contribute to that reef. Why was it important that you wanted to tell those stories? Oh, yeah, look, I think um, 20 years ago when we were, you know, um, uh, we were trying to save Ningaloo Reef from um, kind of disastrous developments that were um, being set for it. Our focus was really on the reef, and and it was more obvious. It's, you know, it's it's glamorous, and um, there's a clear water coral reef. It's close to shore. It's a very important place. But um, and you know, we managed in 2011 um, after we got the marine park extended. We managed to get it onto the World Heritage List along with um, the Cape Range, and sadly, the uh, the Exmouth Gulf, which is also you know UNESCO and the IUCN, uh, acknowledged that it has World Heritage values because uh, it's the biggest uh, intact arid zone estuary of its size in the world that's that's still left to us. Um, uh, it was part. It's supposed to be part of the World Heritage List area, and it got um, it got cut out at the last minute uh, because of political pressure, which was sad. So, in a way, you've got these three really important, really vibrant, rich ecosystems that that link with one another. They're interdependent. Uh, the re- the reef connects to the Gulf, um, 
the Gulf connects to the reef and both of them connect to the Cape Range through this um, subterranean karst waterway. So, you know, in the show I talk about these three ecosystems being like the three toes uh, of the emu, you know, the the emu, which actually is the, the, the... totem animal for the local Bayongu people. So it's a it's a, you know, sacred to them. But without the without those three toes the bird can't stand up, you know, and it can't get purchased and it can't run fast. So we we you know, we're twenty years later still trying to finish the job we, we started um at Ningaloo and and making sure that um the Gulf gets protected. Because at the moment, because it's, it's you know, it's it's an amazing humpback whale nursery um it's got this huge stronghold of dugongs and turtles and manta rays um it's just a wonderland you know but it's um it's got no protection at all and the other two ecosystems that we talk about in the show have world heritage protection so we're just trying to finish that job and get um get you know bring that into the world heritage area as it should be all the sciences on our side um i think the the case is pretty straightforward and we're just trying to uh, just persuade our politicians to follow the science and not the politics this time. In what way do those three relate to each other and um, and balance each other? Well, the interesting thing is that, um, you know, Ningaloo is most famous for its, um, its whale sharks because there's this, you know, aggregation of sharks there close to shore. It's the only place in the world you can reliably see whale sharks that close to shore but the whale shark isn't uh isn't really the i mean it's the iconic species at ningaloo but the the the, the, the animal that bears the most in the tourist economy is the is the manta ray but manta rays use both the ningaloo reef and then they swim hundreds of kilometers around the cape into exmouth gulf and use that period periodically as well as do the jurgongs. Um, the whales use both sides. The dolphins use both sides. So they really do interconnect with one another. The, the boundaries that you see on paper are just you don't see them when you get in the water. <laughs> yeah. Fish just don't fish don't uh, don't see a dotted line, you know, and and dugongs don't see a dotted line. And the weird thing is that um, this enormous promontory that comes out, you know, off the end of Western Australia. It's arid. There's no there's no water in sight anywhere, and yet you're walking over these you know barren, rugged ranges, and they're full of fresh water. And deep below the ground, in the darkness, um, there's just all these incredible stygofauna and troglofauna. These animals that live in the dark and have always lived in the dark. Um, they're there in this freshwater um, reservoirs that um, go out into the sea and then go out into the Gulf. In the Doco, we go down one of these narrow holes into the into the underworld to see these, these kind of blind ga- cave gudgeon, and this blind fish that's been there since the dinosaurs you know it's got no eyes it's like a, it's like a, it's like your finger um and it's just ghostly white you can just about see through it and um you go in there it's like a zombie movie they um they can feel you moving in the water they can't see you but um so you're in surrounded by some of the rarest fish in the world, and they're all just sucking on your t-shirt, hoping that you're um, hoping that you're a bit of food that's fallen 20 metres uh, into the into the cave. Really, really amazing experience. That- I guess the important thing about Ningaloo is to remember that, that um, there's nowhere else in the world uh, where you can see as many species of megafauna, you know, big animals, in one day. There's just nowhere else you can. You can, you know, you can tick off this huge bucket list of large animals, and you wouldn't be able to see that many 
um, different species of megafauna in the Serengeti um, in one day. Is that, they're the spectacular things. Is it also important to recognise the small critters that also move around in the same sort of areas on both sides but yeah. aren't recognised and perhaps there are – because there were um, all sorts of sharks that you were taking a look at within those areas and probably don't get the press but are probably – or you know are as important to the whole ecosystem as well. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean the sharks and rays, um, which are the most um, – Endangered of all the fish, uh, use you know Ningaloo Reef and, and Exmouth Gulf, uh, and Exmouth Gulf in particular as a global stronghold for um, sharks and rays, including um, you know the green sawfish, which is incredibly um, critically endangered, and um, and the bottlenose wedgefish, which is like a, a you know um, the closest thing I suppose to describe it. It's like an enormous um, shovelnose ray or shovelnose shark, which is amazingly endangered. And you know they're they're there in the in the murk feeding all the time. I mean, you know, we're talking about a you know twenty thirty kilo animal, um, just prehistoric. You know, they're um, they're older than Ningaloo. They're older. Than, you know, they've been around in the oceans since before Ningaloo was even formed. Tim, it's also wonderful taking a look at the dedication of the people that work in these fields in incredibly remote areas and for long periods of time. Yeah, no question. That was one of the privileges of being able to um, to work on the show because you know we're talking about a place that's it's thirteen hundred kilometres north of Perth, so it's remote, it's hot. You know, it's 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 WA as you know. It's, you know, if it's not a windy day, you um, you're still asleep. <laughs> um, it's it's always windy. It's always hot. It's challenging to work out there, and um, whether you're twenty metres underground or you're, you're out on a boat um, in twenty knots of wind. Or you're out on a salt flat, you know, and it's 48 degrees. It's tough going, and I really admire these people who are often working in really important um, scientific fields. And their stuff isn't always glamorous, and it's um, it's not, you know, they're not finding a cure for cancer. They're but they're finding ways, many of them, of you know, ways in which we can safeguard, you know, some of our treasures against the, you know, the threats that are looming with climate change, for instance. So, you know, people like Kath Lovelock, you know, um, who's a Geraldton girl, um, who would have thought you'd, you'd, you'd be able to escape Geraldton and end up in in mangrove swamps uh, all over the world, as she as she does from Myanmar to uh, Queensland to, um, to Ningaloo. Um, but, yeah, I really admire people like that who are just so dedicated. 20 years, I think, she's been working there. Tim, is the remoteness one of the things that has kept, especially with the Gulf, protected in some ways, but at the same time not seen enough to be able to get the protection that perhaps Ningaloo has? Yeah, I think historically, Trevor, um, it, you know, Ningaloo probably had the benefit of being remote and um, arid. You know, if there was a rainforest there, the way there there is, you know, uh, uh, on the shore of... of um, the Great Barrier Reef, which everyone knows about, the Great Barrier Reef, and people go there because it's, it's you know, it's the it's the most amazing amazing place almost in the world. But um, people don't go to Ningaloo in the same way. It's yeah, as I said, it's a long way away. It's hot. There's no trees, and its remoteness has kept it um, to some degree safe. And partly, I think also good management has kept it safe and you know and some of that's just down to the irritating greenies who um fought to uh keep it alive but people have asked me you know why why we took the risk of telling us you know talking about our secret place 
and it's a real dilemma. I, I genuinely understand it. But in the end, I think what we learned 20 years ago when we were originally saving the reef was we had to tell people about the secret um, to make it safe. And I think about places like Jook and Gorge in the Pilbara, you know, that I think if people had known about Jook and Gorge five years ago, this incredible, you know, 43,000-year-old rock shelter, if it had been famous, I don't think Rio Tinto would have had the guts to blow the crap out of it, just to make a few more bucks, you know. Um, I, th I think someone would have put a stop to that. No one would have, no one would have even dared. So my hope is that um, that by celebrating our secret we elevate its status you know its cultural status and um and we make people give people an opportunity to know about it and to love it and want to protect it the way that we do tim you can manage tourism to a degree and you can bring ningaloo and the whole associated areas ningaloo to prominence through tourism and as I said, educate tourists, but you can't necessarily educate, or you can in a degree, mining companies. So the isolation there for a factor for mining companies is a little bit different because it means you can go about your business and you won't be affected too much sometimes. Yeah, look, I mean, that's a good point, though. I mean, you can you you, you can dial, you have management issues over, management capacity over tourism. You can dial things back and you can dial them up. Um, it, once you put in, say, you know, a 100-year uh, deep water port, which um, somebody is uh, trying to do in Exmouth Gulf at the moment, or a 50-year salt production facility on the on the flats. Um, those things, those hard bits of infrastructure are fixed, you know, and those big companies, once they get a foothold, they're fixed. They, you, know, you don't dial them back. They um, they dig in and consolidate. And um, as we've seen in the Pilbara, once they get a foothold. It's very difficult to get any control or make any order, you know, even any orderly management of that area. You know, the Pilbara's partly a mess because um, it's just over the horizon, and people, a lot of things happen in the dark, um, uh, out of out of sight. But also, you know, multinational companies have sort of acted in a competitive way, and things have been done in a kind of a disorderly way. Everyone has to have their own port. Everyone has to have their own railway line. The amount of waste and the amount of the amount of duplication that's happened in the north of Australia. I think a lot of people who are, who get to visit that part of the world get to see that on a daily basis. So yeah, I think Ningaloo is a place that's an exception to lots of northern Australia where it hasn't been developed. It's been protected by, as you say, its remoteness, and as I say, it's um, its defenders. And this is the place where we can still get this right, where we don't need, we know we don't need that kind of heavy industrial um, footprint, because you know we've generated a, a really sustainable, diverse tourism economy that has a very light footprint, um, and it's a world leader. People come from all over the world to see how well it's done there and how low-key it is. People come to um, to walk in the canyons and to um, to snorkel in the lagoons and to see the whales and the dolphins and the sharks and the dugongs um, and go away happy. Is one of the major things to get that marine reserve extended across to the Gulf? Definitely. I mean, we, we have managed in the past seven years of work to convince the... West Australian government to uh, make um, a marine park in the in the um, Exmouth Gulf, and that's you know that's a great piece of progress. 
the first the scientists first asked for it in 1994, so we finally <laughs> finally got there. Um, so that's that's a step, and um, you know we're also hoping that the federal government will see the sense in. Um, adding Exmouth Gulf to the National Heritage Register, which is, you know, the first step to World Heritage Listing. And um, I'll be going to Canberra with some comrades um, in, a, in a few weeks to, um, to, to make the case, and hopefully, um, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to the Federal um, Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, um, about that, because the science stacks up. It's just a good, sensible next step. And... Um, we need to close the gate to, you know, to secure the future of this place before you know the last of the carpetbaggers gets in. Watching the documentary, we were lucky enough to dive or to snorkel with manta rays, and that was incredible. But some of the things that you did, especially diving with dugongs and going and watching the spawning of the coral, what was the highlight for you in making the series? Oh, interesting. I mean, I had so many great experience, rare experiences. I mean, I got to, you know, I got to tickle a whale shark, and I got to, I got to hold a, you know, bottlenose, bottlenose wedge fish in my, in my arms. I got clouted for my trouble. <laughs> um, I got to hold a 450 kilo uh, dugong in my arms. So these are all great experiences. But I think the most moving part of making the show was that we were able to film during the period when. The local indigenous people got native title over their own country, and we were able to document their return to country um, as you know traditional owners with legal and moral authority over the over the country, and and to you know to go on archaeological digs with them, and um, it was yeah for me that was it was kind of seeing history being made and being able to record it, and you know people like Hazel Walgar who's in the show. You know, we're not that different in age. We've had extremely different lives, and it's only because um, who our mums and dads were, you know, the colour of our skin. She's had a whole different life to me. And to see her and her countrymen and and her clan come back on country and become joint managers and, and rangers of the country, yeah, that, that was the most moving part for me. It was really stirring her singing to past ancestors during the documentary was incredibly moving. Yeah, no, that's and and you know it's to stand with somebody and feel all that longing and all that grief and all that pride and pain and to be singing to the old ones and you know basically saying here we come we're back mm. we're coming back on country and I'm bringing the young people and there, you know so we were able to film you know the first large gathering of you know multi generation Bongu people of the Ningalara clan um, on their ancestral ground, you know, for the first time in a lifetime. You know, that was very, very moving. Tim, thank you for joining us and telling us about the documentary. It's um, an amazing one and hopefully more people will watch it on Ivy. Thank you. Good on you, Trevor. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 